Uh, when was the last time that you watched a movie or maybe a TV show uh, that used a, this technique? They, they use the technique of um, jumping from one scene to another. And chronologically, they're not telling you that, that maybe they're going back in history or maybe they're moving forward in time. You guys see shows like that? I mean, all kinds of shows use them, right? Do you like, do you enjoy those? Um, sometimes. sometimes? <laughs> I guess it depends on what they're doing. Sometimes it causes confusion, right? Um, you know, you've got jump cuts, which are quick cuts happening, jumping from this scene to this scene, changing chronology, um, different time frames without any hint that that's happening. Now, usually in a good, I think, this is part of a good show, they will bring those around and show you what's happening at some point, right? They'll, they'll, they kind of pull the curtain back and let you see that they actually are changing chronology or this is history. They're filling in gaps in the history that's going to be um, important in the story that's being told. Um, so there is actually purpose in these, in these. Film producers purposefully do this because it adds suspense. It adds mystery. It adds some unknown elements into the story before they actually reveal things to you, right? Um, which does what? It, it keeps us interested. It keeps us tuned in, right? Um, kind of like cliffhangers almost. It's very similar in cliffhangers. It, it wants, makes you want to come back, which is what causes binge watching of shows, right? Because it's like, oh, what was going to happen? Got to watch the next episode. Um, So, again, the main point of this, or one of the main points, is that it keeps us interested. If we could see, now, this actually is God's position, right? If he was out, if, if we were outside of time, like God is, and you can see beginning, end, and you can see all the details in between of a show, what, what would we do? I mean, what would be the purpose of watching it? What would be the purpose of tuning in? There wouldn't be any purpose, right? We would know from beginning to end, and we'd know all the details in between. So click, we'd just shut it off. We'd tune out and turn it off. Um, you might be, you might not be, but you might be surprised to learn that the prophets are actually written in a similar manner that jumps around chronologically quite often without actually giving you great indicators that that's what's going on. Um, so before I get too far along, I want you to remember the three main points that um, are being spoken through the prophets or the main theme that applies to all the prophets. And it's been a while since, since uh, I've shared these, but before the Christmas break, talked about these every week. And they were that speaking to Israel in particular, the nation, and I, when I say Israel in this context, I mean the entire nation, north and south. And God, through the prophets, is saying to them, You've broken the covenant. Repent. And then it's like almost with this hurt feeling. No repentance? Well, judgment is coming. You will have judgment if there's no repentance. And then the third statement that rings true all the way through all the prophets is despite this rebellion and despite your having broken the covenant, there is still hope both for you and for the nations. And I forgot to include the nations in with that judgment part, which is kind of interesting because God's speaking to Israel, to Israel and Judah. Why would the nations be included in that judgment? Well, the reason would be, why did God bless? What did he say to Abraham? He said, I'm blessing you in order for you to be a blessing to the nations. So if they're not doing their job, if Abraham's offspring, if the covenant people aren't doing their job in blessing the nations, the nations are also going to come under judgment. And I didn't even plan to say this, but that also rings true for us in our day and age. If we, as God's covenant people, aren't sharing the gospel, if we're not sharing the gospel with people, not only are we, we're going to experience a certain amount of judgment for that, not condemnation, right? But a certain amount of judgment for not doing what we were told to do. But also, we're potentially exposing people to eternal damnation, to judgment forever, by not being the person who shared the gospel with them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, God's sovereign, and he can bring somebody else into their lives, and he's the one doing the calling. So there's all kinds of compatibilism is what it's called, right? I mean, God sees story from beginning to end and sees all the details in the middle. We don't get to see all the details in the middle, 
because he still wants us to be active and he takes our decisions and our actions and is able to weave them in. He's able to take our story and weave it into his story, right? Oftentimes we want, we just like, God, I've got a plan here. I've got a story. I want to weave you into my story. Won't you come and be part of my story? And God say, no, <laughs> no, actually it's my story. And I want you to come be part of my story, part of God's story. He's, he's inviting us into his story. Um, so now that I'm way off track from my notes, I'll see if I can jump back in here where I planned to be. Um, so the point keeps us interested. Uh, prophets written in a similar fashion. All right, further along than that. Um, yeah, and so the third point of that that is true about all the prophets speaking to us, the three points, you've broken the covenant, so repent, no repentance, then judgment for both you and the nations. And then the third point is, and yet there is still hope of a glorious future for both you and for the nations. Um, So four things here that are important to remember, four more things really, those three things are important to remember, but four more things, especially in dealing with messianic prophecy, um, and here they are. The first one is that the prophetic oral oracles often jump from the current situation to a future situation and then back again uh, without any warning really. Well, why does God use this method? We understand why producers use it, right? Well, I don't know for sure. Maybe we can ask him when we get the opportunity, right? Uh, I think it, part of it is probably to keep us interested in what's going on, right? And it's also that that interweaving, the compatibilism that I was talking about where our sovereignty, our decisions, he actually takes them and weaves them into his sovereignty and, and makes this beautiful picture that he's creating. And there isn't anything that we can do to thwart that outcome. Um, it's going to happen despite the challenges of having to work through our decisions or things that we do. Um, so seriously, I don't know, but I do have a couple of truths I think that, that I can offer. One is that we live in a fallen age and the world around us looks dark and gloomy, right? I mean, there's all kinds of evil. There's all kinds of, of terrible violence, all kinds of injustice happening on a regular basis around us. I mean, if you, all you gotta do is turn on the news uh, and see that or turn on social media and, and see various things as well. But, um, so all of this evil around us, it, it's really, it's just part of the reality that we live in. Now, some of it's self-inflicted because of our sins, right? So some of it maybe is discipline. Um, some of it's just the, re- the, the natural result, results of sin. It's the natural results of living in a fallen world, which includes my sin affecting you and your sins affecting me also, right? Um, so it's dark and gloomy, and the reality is that we live in a world that deserves judgment. We deserve judgment. Deserving God's anger and wrath, the kind of wrath that we read about last week, the kind of wrath that God had in store both for Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and also Assyria, the instrument that he used to bring about that judgment. Um, the problem is, and here's, here's the first truth, if all we're exposed to or all that we read about is doom and gloom, if all the people of Israel would have ever heard was destruction and wrath and, and what was coming, they would lose hope and they'd end up in despair, right? So despite the fact that, that it's necessary to hear about that wrath, to hear about God's wrath, to understand God's wrath, um, we also need hope. Some of the people that heard it ignored the hope or they didn't have a big enough image of God to trust that he could actually carry through and do the things that he talked about that offered that hope. But others there saw the hope that was embedded in the message and they believed. Um, these are some of the points when God's pulling back the curtain, when the, when the camera is panning back and he's showing the bigger picture and he's saying, listen, despite the circumstances that you find yourself in right now, there is hope in the future. There is, I am still at work. I am still in control. And despite being surrounded by the Assyrian army, uh, the, the most horrible people known in that day up to that point, despite being surrounded by them or knowing that they were coming, there is hope because God is still in control. 
Now, the opposite side of this coin is also true, that if all we see is, is if we're wearing rose-colored sunglasses, right, and all we see is the good in things, what happens to us? You said it, I think. Disillusioned? Okay, yeah. Well, or I thought you said complacent, which could be similar. We get, but we get complacent. We get maybe bored, but we certainly get complacent. We think, eh, everything's just fine. Look how good things are. And we forget that actually there is, there's also justice and wrath in the world. Um, so those are at least two truths that I think partially explain why God uses this methodology as well. Now, the second important thing to take note of when we're dealing with the, the uh, prophecies of the Messiah is that they often combine the first and second coming in the same context. I've, I've brought these passages or this particular passage up before, but one of the best examples is Isaiah 60. In, uh, and that's the scroll. When Jesus is in the synagogue in Capernaum, it's the scroll of Isaiah that they hand him, or at least it's the, the portion of Isaiah that he turns to, right? And he reads this. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops right there. It's midway through a verse. I want to read the the next section of this and make a few comments about it. Um, It goes on the passage. Now, Jesus, again, he stopped right there, right? Because this is what he was doing at that point in time. The passage goes on and it says, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now, listen to the restorative, even in the midst of this um, vengeance, the day of the Lord, this vengeance is coming. Uh, listen to the comfort that's coming and the, recon- rec- the reconciling language that's happening here. He says, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. That's restoration, right? The oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities. This is talking about a future, right? Um, we've got the coming, the first coming of the Lord, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. And then we've got the second coming of Jesus, which is proclaiming his vengeance. But all of these good things also happen in that day of his vengeance. It's the restoration of Israel is what he's talking about here. The restoration of of his chosen people. Um, Oh, and I missed the last part of the verse. The last part there of verse 4. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Um, So that's a great example of one passage talking about both the first and second coming of the Lord, and there's others. The third thing to keep in mind in reading the prophets is that the prophets themselves were unclear on the details of their own prophecies. They didn't necessarily know what was going on. Probably one of the reasons that they didn't lay things out in chronological order, and why didn't God straighten that out and have them put it all in chronological order? Well, because he wanted to keep us interested in those truths I just talked about. He needed these snapshots of hope in the midst of the devastation and the, and the destruction and the wrath in order uh, to keep hope alive in the people and to, re- to continuously remind them of who he was and what he had done for them. Um, so the third one here, they were often unclear about the details of the Messianic prophecies that they're making. Turn to First uh, Peter chapter 1 to help keep you awake here have you turned into some passages. So First Peter chapter 1. It's a few books before Revelation, after John, or excuse me, before 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, right after Hebrews and James. Or you can cheat and use your phone, like up here in the front. It's really easy. Just <laughs> Not cheating. I use mine quite often as well. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 12. It says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. 
when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Listen to what was, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. You, brothers and sisters. Now he was talk, Peter was talking to the congregation in front of him right then, but it applies to us the same. They were giving these prophecies for us, for them to be revealed to us. Um, they were serving us, giving us this information. In the things that you, uh, in the things that have now been announced to you, to us, through those who preach the good news to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels longed to look. So mysterious, things so mysterious and so great that the angels are like, they're looking at, they're looking and going, what on the, what in the world is he doing? How is he going to accomplish this? With us, right? <laughs> With you guys. How's the, how's the, how's the Lord going to accomplish these things? The angels are wondering. Um, with these fallen humans, great mysteries that they longed to look into. So uh, the prophets themselves were asking questions. They didn't understand everything that they were writing or everything that was being revealed to them. Um, they were left in the dark as to when and how all these things would take place. But we've seen a great light. Let me ask you a question. This, this might seem a little bit random at the moment, but it's really not. Uh, what's happened in your life today uh, that's caused you a great deal of anger? Let me expand that a little bit, maybe. What's happened this week or this year? We're only a couple weeks into the new year at this point, right? Ten days into the new year. Has anything happened that's caused you anger? Maybe a few things. Maybe some simple things in that time frame, maybe being cut off on the road. And if it was me, I apologize. I don't think I've cut anybody off recently, but um, I have bad days too. Say it again. People driving under the speed limit. People driving the speed limit? Or under the speed limit, yeah. yeah. So then we're tailgating and they're getting angry at us and putting the brakes on. And yeah, I've experienced that a few times. My apologies. Again, if, I, if you were behind me and I gave you a brake check... Um, I think I shared before about riding my bicycle on Highway 62, and, and I was always afraid that somebody that knew who I was riding my bike was going to receive a poor gesture from me because it, it's amazing. Highway 62, there's a shoulder this wide, right? And I can be riding right in the middle of the shoulder and people in the, in the slow lane. It's like they drift over and almost take you out, and there's this instantaneous reaction that happens. So... Again I, again, I was always hoping nobody from the church passed me when passed me like that. Because I don't get mad at just people passing me, right? But anyway, these spurts of anger. Well, let me expand that a little bit. Uh, what's happened in your life, in your whole life, that's caused you great anger, caused you great hurt? I know I don't want, I'm not, don't want to be insensitive. I know in a room this size that there are people who have experienced horrific things in life. Um, It could be that. It could be blatant physical violence or evil perpetrated on us. So not just misrepresentation, but yeah, that's a part, that's a part of it, Brian. If yeah, that well, absolutely, that would cause anger, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That causes anger for sure. Yeah, and that is, that is actually evil. That's, that goes against one of the Ten Commandments, right? So, so it's one of the big ones, to bearing false witness against your neighbor, or false witness, bearing false witness, right? We always think of it, do not lie, thou shalt not lie. It's actually, don't tell untruths about your neighbor or about people around you, other people. Don't tell untruths about people, because that's character assassination. Um, so yeah, that certainly causes anger. But other, I mean, horrible, unspeakable things, and I'm not asking for, that, I'm, not, I'm not chiding you, that was great. I'm not asking for examples, because there are things that, that hurt so much that have happened to some of you, I'm sure that you wouldn't want to speak out loud about them. Um, and I'm not trying to diminish that at all in what I'm going to say. And I would never say this. Take, take note of this, too, as you're counseling people. You would never say to the, this to somebody right in the midst of them experiencing something horrible um, because it does sound insensitive. But there is this truth that needs to be um, talked about. We've all experienced things that would cause us legitimate anger. Um, but, but let me ask another question. If, you, if tonight was your last night, on earth, if you knew, if the Lord said, hey, I'm calling you home, 
Would that change your perspective on those things? Would it change what you thought about these things that have, that have happened to you, no matter how horrible they, they are, they really are? Um, would, it, would it change what you thought about the people that have perpetrated them on you? Is there regret or bitterness or angry anger that you're carrying right now that could suddenly go away if you knew that this was your last moments on earth. I know this happens to people because I've experienced it in speaking to people who are on their deathbed. Um, and not always, but they certainly are not thinking about those things. They're usually considering regrets. And it's usually not like, why didn't I work more? It's why didn't I spend more time with my family? Why didn't I say I'm sorry to so-and-so? Why didn't I reconcile this relationship? Um, it's never about, I wish I had extracted vengeance on so-and-so for what they did. It's never what they're thinking about. Listen to this quote from uh, A.W. Tozer. He said this in The Knowledge of the Holy. If you don't know Tozer, he's an uh, author from the, I don't know what his time frame was. I know he wrote this book in 1961. Um, so in the 50s, 60s, maybe into the 70s, really well-known a really good author. If you've not read anything by Tozer, I'd, anything he's written is worth reading. But listen to this short quote. He says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The gravest, gravest question before the church is always God himself. And when, I, when, when he says, when I say church, he's talking about us as people, right? Not each one of us as individuals is part of the church. The gravest question before us is not is always God himself. And the most portentous, I had to look that up, it means essentially the most important fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Now, how this relates to what I was just talking about. Um, the secret to who you really are and the key to your future, it's not your self-image. It's not what you think about yourself. It's not what you think about yourself because of what other people have done, the kinds of identity that they've given you through the damage that they've committed against you. Your identity and the most important thing about you is your image of God. Um, part of that is realizing that my identity is in Christ, right? My future is in Christ. My past may affect who I am today, but it doesn't control who I am. But my identity in Christ does control who I am, and especially moving forward. But even more important than that is what our image of God is, our God, the God image that we carry around up here, what we think about God, how powerful he is, what he's actually able to do, how he's actually able to fulfill his promises and to work things out in, in a world that is so full of craziness and evil. How big is that God? In your heart, in your minds. That's the most important thing. Um, again, your identity, value, and worth, it's not centered on what has been done to you or what you might think about yourself because of those things, but rather, uh, or through the lens of that damage, but rather it's through the lens of how you view God. The gospel, the good news, the fact that Jesus came to save us, um, Part of the way that it saves us is by improving our God image, giving us a clearer picture of who he is, a bigger picture of who he is. It gets us thinking realistically about the wrath of God and longingly about his grace and wanting to live there in the midst of his mercy and grace. The fourth thing uh, to know when reading the prophets is that a lot of the prophecies revolving around the, uh, the Messiah are going to be fulfilled during the millennial reign, and which is what I take to be a very literal thousand-year reign of Christ, sitting on a throne, interacting with people, interacting with born-again believers who are living in a resurrected body, which is going to be you and me, but also people that are living in these old model bodies like what we have right now. And, and they're going to be in the same time zone, which is just bizarre and baffling and blows my mind. Um, to me, the best uh, uh, 
comprehension of scripture as a whole indicates that Christ is coming to reign, that he's going to bring his people with him, and yet there's, and all evil is going to be taken out of the world, and he's going to reign righteously and as, and this, as this good king, um, and yet people are still going to rebel somehow. Not resurrected, not people in resurrected bodies, but people in these old model bodies will still have an opportunity to rebel, and some will. Uh, and it, it describes that um, reign, that millennial reign in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. Uh, great study. Don't have time to go deeper into it tonight. But So as we move into our passage, it is one of the main topics, in a sense, though, of our... of. Uh, one of the main points tonight is that we're getting the king we always needed. It's kind of my second point as we move into the scripture, but uh, that is actually the millennial reign of Christ. It's talking about that king, the king we've always needed and probably always wanted without really knowing it. Um, so a simple outline as we get ready to move into Isaiah here. Uh, this is a rather large section that we're going to be in tonight. And it closes out, or it's the first little subsection that started in chapter 7. This section ends in chapter 39, but this little subsection ends tonight. It started in chapter 7, ends here in uh, chapter 12 tonight. Um, So here's three main points. Real simple outline, three things that are happening in these. God is moving in history in order to preserve his remnant people. And we're going to see that in chapter 10, the last half of of chapter 10, verses 16 through 34. We'll move through that fairly rapidly because we did part of that last week. Um, The second point is that God is raising up the king we've always wanted. That's chapter 11. Basically, it's the root of Jesse, the stump of Jesse passage, or the branch of Jesse, the stump. um, The stump prophecies, it's called. Um, And then all of chapter 12, which is six whole verses, is God's, and the point there is that God's overwhelming grace is producing praise in our hearts. And we'll move through that section fairly rapidly too. Chapter 11 is where we'll spend most of our time and hopefully we'll get through all of it i thought i was going to run short on time last week and ended up being shorter than i expected and this week i'm probably much longer than i thought i would be so we're going to be again in chapter 10 if you want to turn there isaiah 10 but as you're turning or as you're finding your spot there um, just a really brief reminder, a little bit of different information about what we've been reading. Uh, last week, we read Isaiah's article, oracles, I mean, concerning God's judgment on Israel, Judah, and uh, how he was going to do that through the nation of Assyria. Um, we also saw the beginnings of his judgment against Assyria. We'll see a little bit more of that tonight. Um, but here's the here's the important thing. I've got this big, long paragraph written here, but I'm just going to try to explain it off the cuff a little bit. Isaiah is prophesying in the south, right? In Judah. And he's most of his prophecies are are directed uh, straight at Ahaz at this point in time, the king. Part of the Davidic line. Not a good king. Not a good king. But um, But he is the king and he is the Davidic promise being fulfilled as he's still on the throne. So Isaiah is there telling him, giving him these prophecies. He's offered him signs, remember, in, in uh, chapter 7 and all the way up to verse uh, chapter 9. And prophecies that we're really familiar with, they're, they're Christmas prophecies, right, about this child that's promised. This, and uh, he's going to be a wonderful counselor, an everlasting king, and, and good and righteous and all these things. Um, and it's talking about a baby that's coming, right? And tonight we see a picture of a grown man, actually, um, but why is why is uh, why is Isaiah there in the south prophesying to Ahaz things about the northern tribes, right? Because he's talking about their destruction primarily, about Assyria coming in and wiping them out. Well, the reason is this: it's very similar to the sign that he offered up. It's in order that when these things happen, Ahaz will know that Isaiah was speaking the truth. He'll know that Ahaz was, or that Isaiah was speaking for God, that he's God's spokesperson in the kingdom there at that time. Um, so put yourself in Ahaz's shoes, right? This is about 10 years after Isaiah makes these prophecies. He sees them come true. What's he going to start thinking about the prophecies he made about Judah? Well, those are going to come true also, 
right? Because that was the second half of what he was talking about. He, he, he gave prophecies about what was to happen to the northern tribes. He also said, Assyria is not going to stop there. You've made this deal with them, but it's going to cost you everything because not only are they going to wipe out Assyria or wipe out Israel, but they're going to come right down in and right up. It, it talks about it being like a floodwaters coming right up to the next. So coming right up to Jerusalem and laid, laying siege on Jerusalem and putting you in harm's way also. So you've made this deal essentially with the devil and he's going to come back and be requiring payment for this deal you've made. Um, so uh, it's showing that God can be trusted despite the circumstances that he might see that he shouldn't have made this deal. You should have trusted God. And now, because you didn't, these things are going to happen. And that's going to prove that what Isaiah said was true. Does that make sense? It's a little convoluted, but... Um, All right, so the first point here, God is moving history in order to preserve his remnant people, chapter 10. Therefore, uh, verse 16, chapter 10, verse 16. Therefore, the Lord of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors. And I mentioned last time this is probably referring to the 185,000 Assyrian soldiers like wiped out in a single night um, in 702. And under his glory, a burning will be kindled, like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land that the Lord will destroy, both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. This is all describing the the uh, destruction of Assyria. Well, and how did that happen? Well, a bigger fish came along later and wiped out Assyria, right? The Babylonians came and took care of Assyria, um, which is usually the way God works. When he's bringing judgment, you know, this little fish goes and eats up whoever he's bringing judgment against, and a little bigger, bigger fish comes along later on and brings judgment upon that fish and so on. And there's always a bigger fish in the sea, right? Until in the last days, the biggest fish of all, which the beast, uh, 666, probably the, the uh, system of mankind and everybody putting their faith and trust in humanism and in that system, uh, that beast, that, that's the biggest fish in history, right? And then God's going to wipe it out, wipe them all out. Um, So at this, at this point, right after verse 19 here, this is where the cameraman zooms out and looks beyond the current event. So God backs up. He says, all this is happening, but, but look. Look at verse 20. Um, there is hope coming um, beyond these events and looking into the future. Well, how do we know that it's looking into the future? Or how do we know that he's jumping chronologically here? Well, the phrase that begins verse 20 there, it says that in that day. Now, there are other similar verse or similar phrases throughout um, scripture that are very similar to this. They're like in those days, in the last days, in the day of the Lord. These are generally referring to uh, time frames pointing to the escalon, to the eschatalon, to the end times, to things that are going to happen in the end. You guys are familiar with the term eschatology, big 25 cent word. It's probably a 50 cent word now because of inflation, but... Um, the study of the things of the end, eschatology. Uh, good thing to know, good term to know. Um, so verse 20 says, In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them. In other words, they won't be making deals with Assyria anymore, but they're actually going to come back to the Lord. But they will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and they'll do it in truth. Verse 21, A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. It's interesting because earlier, I don't think he used, it's the same word. It's not translated exactly the same, but uh, the king of Assyria said, I'm the mighty one. Same word that's used here. And God said, no, actually, this will all be done by the mighty God. Verse 22. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. He's referring back to his promise to uh, Abraham and, and all of the, the 
patriarchs, that their descendants would be larger, that their descendants would be innumerable, right? Be, um, you couldn't count them. They'd be like the sands of the sea or the stars in the heaven. But he also makes a point here that not all of them are going to be part of that remnant. There's going to be a select group, a select few. Um, and nothing's gonna, nothing can change this. It's decreed. And then without warning, in, chap- in verse 24, he shifts back to the present. Uh, verse 24, he says, Therefore, and the therefore is basically saying, since this hope exists, this hope that he just points out, uh, thus, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of this, the Assyrians when they strike with a rod and lift, lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. I'm going to redirect my anger from you to them. Um, Verse 26, and the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. This is referring to Judges chapter 7, the story of Gideon and what happened there against the Midianites. If you want to take note of that and read it at your leisure. Uh, and then he goes on to say, and his staff will be over the sea. This is a picture of Moses and the staff of Aaron. If you remember he, his staff over the sea, what happened? The waters parted, right? And they went through safely. Um, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, this is a reference to Exodus 17. When you remember when Moses, whenever he would hold the staff in the air, the, the Israeli army was victorious and making ground. And whenever he, his arms would get tired and he'd lower them down, they'd start being defeated. So finally, uh, I think it was Caleb and Aaron, maybe it was Caleb and Joshua, went and lifted his arms up, kept his arms up in the air, and, and they had victory that day. What that means of them helping him, I don't remember at the moment, but um, not the point. He's just saying in a similar way, he's, he's having them recall ways that he's worked in, in the nation in the past and reminding them who he is to them, which is a great reminder for us we should actually take account of things that god has done for us in our life not a bad idea to write them down to remind ourselves once in a while of those things uh, and bring them to remembrance when we're facing challenging or difficult times or when things seem insurmountable when we're surrounded by the army of assyria right whatever that might be in our lives whatever challenges and frustrations and and uh, things that we're facing we remember that god's good he's on our side he loves us um, he has our best interests at heart, which isn't always pleasant necessarily for us, right? But it's good. It's good. <laughs> um, verse 27. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. All these things are referring to the yoke here, his yoke. It's talking about the king of Assyria and his his dominion or his rule over the people there, right? Um the phrase, the yoke will be broken because of his fat, difficult translation in all the commentaries. Nobody's, got a, nobody's really got it pinned down, but it, think of it, it's probably something like this. He's gotten, it's not the way the ESV reads it here, but it's more something along the lines of his yoke is actually going to be broken because he's gotten so fat off of you. He's taken from you. He's been taken spoils. He's been taken tribute from Israel and from Judah, and, and it's... Uh, caused his head to swell and broken his yoke, essentially, something along those lines. Um, but again, it's a challenging phrase to, to uh, translate. Um, the next thing that we get in verse 28 it, through 32 is this route. That, that So the path that they're going to take, and this is the, referring to the Assyrian army, after they've raised, leveled, destroyed Israel, the northern tribes. It's the route that they're going to take to come toward Jerusalem. Um, it's a little interesting because most of the commentaries say this is not a common route. Uh, so they think Isaiah is probably using it as a word picture more than actually describing the exact path that they took. Because apparently the route, it would be hard for a small group of people to navigate this route, let alone a big army to go through it and take this route. So uh, best guess is that 
because they were all, there was a lot of high peaks mentioned here in, in the places that the geography was challenging and difficult. There's like, no matter what comes against the Assyrian army, they're going to make it through and they're going to get there. Nothing's going to stop them from carrying out this destruction and this judgment that God is using them to bring. Um, so he goes through this route. All these, this would be like, you know, he went from Klamath Falls to Medford and all the, it'd be places that they knew and recognized. And I'm not going to go through and read and mispronounce all these names of these cities, okay? You're welcome to read them on your own. Um, there isn't anything all that pertinent to us tonight that he talks about in there, except maybe in uh, verse 32. He says, this very day he will halt at Nob and he will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion. So he's shaking his fist at Jerusalem and uh, just being defiant. And, and we saw how arrogant he was back in the first part of chapter 10 and what he said about himself. And I read a quote that was from like 200 years before this from an Assyrian king as well. And, and how all these descriptions he had of, I am mighty and I am strong and I am great and I'm going to do all these things. And, and he stops and he's shaking his fist at, at, at God and, and at the hill of Jerusalem. Um, and then verse 33, it says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. He's just going to wipe them out when he's ready, when it's time. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. A lot of you are old enough to remember Mount St. Helens when it went off in the 80s. 80, was it 1980 or 1984? I don't remember for sure, but 1980. All right, so some of you aren't maybe old enough to remember Mount St. Helens going off, but... But some of us are, right, D? Yeah, all right. If you've ever seen pictures of, of it, you can, you can look up online and you see these, these forests, which were beautiful, majestic, old-growth forests, and they just look like toothpicks laid down and bare uh, for huge swaths of land. This is the kind of picture that's being described here, the trees of Lebanon being cut down. Lebanon had uh, these immaculate cedar forests, apparently, um, and they're all, God's talking about them just all being wiped out. He's using that as a picture of the Assyrian army, that all of these trees are soldiers, right? Or they represent the Assyrian army, and God's just going to cut them down with an axe after they've done his bidding and carried out his judgment against Israel and Judah. Um, but this is the kind of picture he's using. He's using descriptive language to call to mind these mighty forests and how the Assyrian army is going to be struck down with an axe swiftly. Um, Again, think Mount St. Helens. And if you don't have a picture in your head at all about that, look it up on, on the Internet later. Uh, the picture is also representative of Israel and Judah. Israel will be devastated, and Judah will be just a fragment of its former glory. Assyria never takes over the southern kingdom, but it does. It, it controls about 90% of it by the time all of this is said and done here, and long before the Babylonians come and, and actually finish the job. But probably 90% of... Um, the southern kingdom is under their control for a period of time at least. And they do besiege or they're coming to besiege uh, Jerusalem when the Lord cuts, when this happens, when he cuts down their army and Jerusalem's never touched by the Assyrians anyway. Um, so it's a bleak picture here. Heavy damage has been inflicted by the Assyrians. Um, the offspring of David is rebellious, Ahaz who's the offspring of, of David, um, not trusting Yahweh. And the Davidic line, this Davidic covenant, seems to be in jeopardy. I mean, um, there's just there's not a good king on the throne and things don't look good. The kind of uh, uh, treaties that he's making, the kind of contracts he's making with, with, um, with Assyria. Have you ever cut down a tree and not salted it or anything to, you know, to kill the roots? What happens when you cut down a tree and... and sprouts, right? Yeah. You get new life, new growth comes out of it. Especially I've got two pin oaks in our backyard that I cut off and they just poof, got all these every year. And pin oaks drop their leaves in the spring, not in the winter, like other trees. When the new growth comes on, has nothing to do with it tonight other than it's frustration to rake both spring and winter, right? Is the, the point there. <laughs> um, yeah, so you end up with a stump. And if you don't apply something that kills the roots uh, life reemerges. That's the picture we get in chapter 11. God is raising up the king we've always wanted. Um, 
I'm going to run out of time. We're going to be in part of the, some of these verses next week. So, um, Have you ever wondered how New Testament believers connected Jesus to being the Messiah of the Old Testament? What, how they, I mean, what, other than the fact all the miracles that they saw, right? They got to walk with him for three years and got to know who Jesus was. But, but verses like chapter 11 here are, are some, or some are, are uh, an example of places where New Testament connections get made that point directly to Jesus as the Messiah. Because um, a lot of people actually saw him perform miracles. They saw signs and wonders, and they still refused to believe. Uh, he said he fed 5,000 one time, 3,000 another, and yet at his crucifixion, how many were left? Maybe maybe 100 in the upper room? Who knows? 12 for sure, but even they had scattered, right? Uh, so signs and wonders don't lead to belief necessarily. Um, So I had several verses here to point you to that I'm going to skip over. I was going to read them, but they all talk about this this branch that's being raised up. Um, in fact, let's just read the first verse of chapter 11 here. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Um, Now, it's an, an interesting word that's used here for, uh, oh, excuse me, I didn't finish it. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The word that's used here for branch is an interesting word. There's a lot of words in the Hebrew language that mean branch, and I'm not going to bore you with most of the details that I don't even really know about those words. But what I know about this one, it's netzir. And um, I've been told, I have not been there, but what I've been told is that if you're in Israel and you're driving north, see a Galilee region and you're, you're headed that direction, you come to a sign that says Netzir and it's got an arrow and it points this way or maybe it points that way. Any wild guesses what town that might be? What's, what's connected to Jesus? What town? Nazareth. Yeah. Um, Nazareth, which means branch. So we've got the branch from the branch village, uh, Nazareth, Nazarite, uh, not the same as Nazarite, but um, this word Netzir, Netzirith, or Netzirath, very uh, similar, probably the root, the original, um, the, epitom- the epitomology, where Nazareth comes from. And Matthew puts this together in the genealogy because he takes that branch and lays out the genealogy and points it right back to, to well, he points it back to David. Who's Jesse? David. David's dad, right? Yeah. Yep. So Matthew in the genealogy, when he opens the book of Matthew, is pointing right back to this. He, he, I think he starts with the son of Jesse, David, and walks through the genealogy. He's proving that Jesus is a descendant of Jesse, of David. So he's making this connection to, to this branch being spoken about here in chapter 11. Um, And then it's, it's just, it's quite interesting that the branch from the branch town. Uh, there's six things that we're going to learn about this branch in these passages. First one is that his lineage will be from David. We just talked about that there in the verse, in the first verse. Uh, the next one is going to, is that his character will be divine. His rule will restore unimaginable peace to the creation. His leadership will draw all the nations to him. His nations will be regathered in victory. And six, his people will worship in spirit and truth. Chapter 11, uh, verse 2. We already read verse 1. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Uh, Again, his character will be divine. 
what we see here is a person, a king, um, uh, part of the Davidic line, which is why we know it's a king being spoken about, a grown man who the Spirit of the Lord rests upon. What did, what did, you remember what happened when Jesus was baptized? The Spirit descended upon him and rested on him, right? Um, that was more for John the Baptist's sake than for Jesus' sake. The Spirit was already on Jesus before that, but, uh, but we see the Spirit resting upon him, and we see the Spirit resting on him in wisdom, giving him wisdom, giving him understanding, giving him uh, counsel and might, wonderful counselor, mighty warrior from chapter 9, uh, and also with a spirit of knowledge. And then this fear of the Lord. Uh, interesting concept. A lot of times we, we probably tend to tell people, well, you, don't, you don't need to be afraid of God. That, that maybe is not good advice. Remember in C.S. Lewis's in, in uh, the... the the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mr. Beaver. Lucy asks about asks about Aslan and says, "Well, is he is he is he safe?" You know, she's described this uh, good, righteous being that rules Narnia, and Mr. Beaver goes, oh, "Safe? No, he's not safe. He's a lion, for heaven's sake. But he's good. Yeah. Um, God is that way. We should have a reverent fear and respect and awe." Um, and in this context, it means to see the Lord as awesome, to be fearful of offending him or of disobeying him. The next thing it says there is that this person also delights in others who have that same fear of the Lord. Not only is he going to have that kind of awe and respect for, for Yahweh, but he delights in us when we have that kind of fear and respect for Yahweh. Uh, it's a respect to the point of worshipful awe, um, confidence to the point of bold security in who this person is and love to the point of fierce loyalty. So this person, he himself, this branch, this king, this Messiah will have a fear of the Lord and then also he delights in us. Consider consider this. Now I know I mixed up my... Uh, there's a little, little bit of verbal confusion going on here in tense. Um, it's really on purpose, but um, consider what would happen if God's people are afraid of him more than anybody else. The result will be profound courage. Now, the tense confusion there is because these things are true, whether we're engaging in them or experiencing them or not, God's people are actually more afraid of him than anybody else. And the result is actually profound courage. The question is, are we, are we, uh, are we cooperating with that? Are we living into that? Are we living, do we have a big enough image of who God is and what He's done in our lives that we actually are willing to enter into that kind of life and live with that kind of courage? To share our testimony with other people, to give them the opportunity to come into the kingdom. Uh, hopefully we are. So again, consider what would happen if these things are already true because they are actually happening. Just are they happening in my life is the question. Um, the next thing that we see in verses 6 through 9 is that his rule will restore unutterable or unimaginable peace in the creation. Verse 6, the wolf, wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the roll of the cobra, over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Animal and plant life suffers now. And you might take note of uh, Romans eight eighteen through twenty two. It says that the creation groans for the re for the revealing of the sons of man. the The creation is 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 just waiting for this revelation of God's children, of uh, you and me, and of God's reign coming and ruling the earth and bringing restoration and bringing peace. All this peace that is talking about there between uh, not only between us and God, reconciliation that happens there. Between you and I, between uh, so peace with each other. It talks in other passages about peace between northern and southern Israel because they've been divided since shortly after the Davidic, or shortly after David's reign, right? Um, but it's also talking about this peace in the creation itself, a return to the garden, 
where everything is shalom, everything is peace, everything is good and right. Um, and even animals that we think of as, as, as dangerous, like a lion eating straw, right? How's that going to happen? He's got the wrong kind of teeth. I have no idea how that's going to happen. Huh? They do eat grass. My dog eats grass once in a while, right? So it's possible, yeah. They just don't seem to have the right kind of teeth. But God gave them the first set. He can give them the next set if it, they need to be different. So how that will happen, I, I don't know. Um, but I know that it will. I trust that it will. So imagine a world with no animosity or hostility. It's pretty unimaginable, actually, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, all we've ever known, all the history of the world has ever known is war and hostility. There's never been a time when there was peace everywhere. We experienced little glimpses of peace probably in our own lives now and again. Probably m more here in the United States than other parts of the world. Um, we're a little isolated, insulated from things uh, from time to time. Um, well, it's hard to imagine, and at the same time, we know that it's true. It's in us. We long, we long for it. It's what we're hoping for every time there's an election, and it's what we're let down by every time there's an election, no matter who wins. There's always disappointment. It doesn't matter which side of the aisle ends up in office. Uh, there's unmet promises. There's unmet expectations. And they're, un they're incapable of bringing this kind of peace. They're not the king we've always needed. Jesus is the king we've always needed. Uh, verse 10. In that day... <clears throat> The root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. His leadership will draw all the nations. Uh, his leadership will draw all the nations to him. Um, maybe your version says resort. They will resort uh, rather than in, or uh, rather than inquire. It means the same thing. It means to inquire, to consult, to seek out guidance from him. So all the nations, the Gentiles, all the peoples of the world are going to come there. This has never happened. And this can't be talking about in heaven or in that eternal state later on. This is why I said these passages, I'm convinced, are speaking of the millennial reign. Uh, because there's still judgment happening. God's still judging or this king who's sitting on the throne is bringing judgment. It says he's bringing um, it says he was bringing uh, where did it go? The breath of his lips shall kill the wicked. So there's still death at this point even. So it would seem that we're talking about something pre-eternal state uh, and, the, and that's exactly what Revelation 20 talks about in the millennium. Um, You also see the nations coming, take note of chapter 2 of Isaiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It talks about the nations coming to God's holy mountain and receiving instruction. So again, pointing to the millennium, I'm, I'm convinced. And I'm not the only one. Uh, true spiritual leadership draws godly people, and they don't need to be coerced, right? If you're, if you're speaking the truth and speaking the gospel to people, it draws godly people toward you. And we tend to congregate together, which is awesome. Um, but it can't be forced, right? You can't force godliness, but you can offer it. Similar to not overstepping authority to the point of losing influence. So a word to parents in particular, as your kids get older, your, your authority structure is still there, but you actually need to not apply authority to the point that it diminishes your influence, right? That they get to the point where they say... Well, I don't really care what mom and dad say. They can be as authoritative as they want. And yeah, they can take away all these things from me, but it's not going to change my behavior, right? But influence oftentimes is a better um, route as, as kids get older. Same thing when we're, when we're sharing the gospel with people. You can't force godliness. You can't legislate everything in our culture to be Christian, right? And we shouldn't actually expect non-Christians to act Christian. Um, but we can offer it. We can show that it is something better. Um, we're grafted in 
Israel is actually the recipient of these blessings, and, and as the church, we're grafted in through Christ Jesus, uh, through faith in the branch who is Christ Jesus. And you can write down Romans 11, 11 through 36 to, to uh, read a little bit more about that. Uh, finally, verses 11 through 16, and we'll end here. His nation will be regathered in victory. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt. It lists, there's a big long, there's a big list here, and it's essentially north, east, west, and south. From every place that they've been scattered, he's going to regather his people. He's going to draw them back in. Um, he's going to raise a signal for the nations, verse 12. He's a banner. Like when you go to war, each side in days of old in particular, they had a banner, you know, they had a bannerman, somebody who carried a, a sigil or something that represented a, a tribe, right? Um, similar thing here. Jesus is that banner, uh, or he's going to raise a signal for the nations. And they'll assemble the, the, and he will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart. Those who arrest Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous. So that strife that's been in Israel between north and south is going to go away. And Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down, verse 14, on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt. That land spit between... Uh, the Red Sea and the Sea of Aquaba. It's talking about something in that area, whether it's actually a destruction of one of those seas or a word picture that any barriers are going to be removed. Not really sure. But uh, Second half of 15, it will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath. and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead the people across in sandals. It's kind of a picture of the Red Sea parting again. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they, come up out of the land of, when they came up out of the land of Egypt. So it's talking about the second regathering. So the exodus out of Egypt was this first gathering, and the Lord leading his people into the promised land. This is this, another regathering of his people from every place they've been scattered to back into the land. And it would seem that this is speaking about ethnic Israel um, and not all of God's people, which would be you and I, or Gentiles who have come into faith, who've been grafted in. Um, but at the, it, it may be all of us, but at the very least, and I think uh, holds true that it, he's speaking of ethnic Israel being drawn back in. Um, and you can see some of this happening today, right? If, this, if, if, if you'd have told somebody a hundred years ago that Israel was going to be a nation again, they'd have told you you were crazy. You're off your rocker. That they would be re regathered and rejoined into a land. It had never happened to any other people ever in history to be gone for basically since uh, 70 AD. You know, I mean, they really haven't been in control of their own fate or weren't in control of their own fate since, um, well since the Babylonian army came and took them over in 586 and took them into captivity, or 486, uh, 586. So from that point until they became a nation again in 1948, they really weren't self-ruled. Even though they, they went back, they rebuilt the temple, but they were, they were essentially puppets of Babylon for quite some time. They weren't self-governed, uh, maybe for very short periods of time, like the Mac the Maccabean Revolution, they took back over for a short period of time, but the Greeks came through and ruled them. The Romans then came and ruled over them. Uh, and until 1948, hadn't been a nation. So for you to tell somebody 100 years ago that this nation that hasn't existed for 2,000 years is going to reemerge, again, they'd have said you were crazy. This is a picture of that, of that stump and new growth coming out, right? And ultimately, the Messiah is going to sit on that throne and reign. Um, so could it be in process today? Absolutely. Also keep in mind that Israel is not anywhere near Christian. Uh, the rebirth of that of them as God's people, they've been rebirthed as a nation, but their rebirth as God's people is, there's going to be some painful birth pangs to make that happen, right? Uh, 
And I'll make just the, the last point and let you go. I kept you too long. We'll do chapter 12 next week. But the final thing here in chapter 12, the result of all of this is that God's overwhelming grace is producing in our hearts praise. Um, so that's why we praise God. That's why we love him. Lord, we're thankful for your word, uh, thankful for... Uh, thankful for the things that you've done in our lives, Lord, and I pray that you would bring to remembrance those things on a regular basis, the, the good things that you've done, even when we're surrounded by fearful things, Lord. Um, well, one, that our, that our image of who you are and what you are, what you're capable of would be so big that nothing in this world would ever frighten us again, uh, that we would be trusting in you no matter what's coming, that we would have that peace that you provide, Lord, a peace that transcends understanding because you really are, uh, you can handle everything and you do handle everything, Lord. Thank you for that. And Lord, as uh, help us to live that way, Father. Help me to live that way. Help me to, to share my faith on a regular basis, Father. Um, sharing with people the good things that you've done for me, uh, the good things that you desire to do for them and helping the kingdom to expand, helping other people to... Uh, not just to escape your wrath, but to actually come into a loving relationship with you, Lord. A, a place of community where we feel desired and needed and, and, and wanted in a sense, um, but loved most of all. A place to belong and to, to be loved. Thank you that, that you know us fully and even still you do actually love us. Father, I pray that you bless each and every one of my brothers and sisters here and grant us safe passage home until we are able to come together again. We love you, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name.